3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Today, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. Uh, We've got a variety of interviews coming up. First up, we incorporated a couple of interviews that were done on Listening Notes, which is a 3CR program. Uh, It's a resistance radio that explores the movements that made us uh, drawing from the activists' archive through to Voices of Resistance today. And the focus of these two interviews is on environmental law. Then we've got the second track of the Underfoot series uh, by Liz Crash and Jinghua Xian, which is uncovering the secrets of and history of Footscray. Then Genevieve has done an interview with Professor Jayashri Kalkani. Jayashri is a professor of psychiatry and she talks to us about the link between reproductive hormones and mental illness. Today I'm taking another look at the laws protecting the environment. I'm speaking with Rob Fowler about the interim report of the Review of the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, or the EPBC Act. And keeping with the environment theme, I'll also be speaking with Viviana Maritas about research on the long-nosed potteroos. They basically just look for these sporocarps. So they dig an ecosystem engineer, much like our bilbies and betongs and lyrebirds as well. Like they dig to forage for these truffles. And as they dig, they turn over the soil and that increases the soil fertility. Sometimes it can mitigate fires. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Viviana Maritas coming up later in the show. But first up, the EPBC Act. Rob Fowler's an adjunct professor in environmental law at the University of South Australia. He led the team of environmental law experts that developed the Appeal Report, that's A-P-E-E-L, and that was a blueprint for the next generation of Australian environmental laws published in 2017. I was interested in his thoughts on the interim report of the Samuel Review, but to begin I asked Rob about the role of the law in protecting the environment. To set standards for environmental quality and to put in place frameworks for the making of decisions and the policies that are intended to protect the environment. So law provides the framework within which we would hope that governments will perform their responsibilities with protection and conservation of the environment. And are there some limitations to what the law can provide? Yes, I think even when we were running what we called the Appeal Project, we acknowledged that for a start, laws are only as effective as, as they are well written. And even if you've got very good laws, then their implementation by governments can vary. 
And there's a whole additional area beyond law of policies, strategies and other forms of direction that are not of themselves laws. Laws are part of the equation, a very important part. Without it, we would not be able to protect the environment. A number of reports produced over the last four or five years agree that Australia's environment is in a state of decline. And much of the blame has been placed on the inadequacy of the EPBC Act. So is the problem the Act itself or the federal government's failure to administer the Act? The short answer to that is it's both. This Act has existed now for over 20 years and there was a predecessor to it adopted by the Whitlam government back in 1974-75. There have been repeated inquiries, Auditor General's reports, concerning in particular the way in which the Commonwealth inserts itself into the process of assessing and, and approving projects that might have some form of national significance from an environmental perspective. The Whitlam government was world-leading in adopting that law. It was one of the first of its kind anywhere in the world, but it had certainly become outdated. So then when the Howard government introduced this new law, there was a great deal of optimism that it might provide a, a new standard. Since then, over the last 20 years, it's become apparent that the law itself was poorly drafted, is incredibly cumbersome and complex, and is just failing to do its job. And that's been reinforced by the findings most recently of a very damning report by the Auditor-General into the administration of the Act by the Commonwealth Environment Department, and now by the Samuel Report. It needs to be replaced in its entirety. Right, and has not been adequately administered Successive coalition governments since Tony Abbott was elected and now the Morrison government have reduced the resources within the Commonwealth Environment Department that are dedicated to the administration of the law and its implementation. So it's not just the law is in effect, it's also that the Commonwealth government is not prepared to provide the resources that are appropriate and necessary for an ineffective law to at least have some effect. When the current review of the environmental laws was announced in October last year, the Federal Minister for the Environment, Susan Lee, stated that one of the aims was to tackle, and I quote, green tape and deliver greater certainty to business, farmers and conservation groups. So I'm wondering, what do you feel the Morrison government was looking for, looking to achieve by this review? Were they concerned about the environment and the environmental laws? What's your sense of it? The government was obliged to conduct an independent review because the Act itself does contain a provision that requires a review once every 10 years. So it had no choice and it waited to the very last moment. But that's the first thing to understand. The government didn't choose to go into this review. It was compelled to do so by the law itself. There's been a competing tension ever since the review was initiated as a result of some of the statements made by the Federal Environment Minister between the goal of greater efficiency in the implementation of the law, which means what the minister's called less green tape, and greater effectiveness, which is what the community has been seeking in terms of outcomes and the objects of the Act. And those tensions are evident even after uh, independent review has presented its interim report. The reviewer has called for major reform of the Act, has called for the establishment of an independent regulator who would not be subject to ministerial direction. And immediately the minister stepped in and said, well, we're just not going to do that. That's out of the question. We are going to make amendments to the Act even before you presented your final report in November. 
the government's position is very clear. It is not interested in major reform of the Act to improve environmental outcomes. Its objective is to try to facilitate more efficient approvals of proposals. And of course, with the COVID situation now and the commission that has been looking into the post-COVID, so-called post-COVID recovery plan, largely populated by people with a background in the gas industry, it has the perfect excuse for saying where we need to stop this act from getting in the way of major resource development. I read a media report that Professor Samuel said he comes to chairing this review, I think he, he used the term as a clean skin, that he's kind of an honest broker was my sense. The report itself is very thorough in its examination of the weaknesses of the current legislation and the implementation of the legislation. I think it is, in that sense, a, a relatively objective report. I don't think he's sought to do the government's bidding. I think he's attempted to the best of his abilities to produce a report which is thorough, detailed in its critique and quite wide-ranging in its recommendations. The other side of that coin, though, is that coming to it as a clean skin, I think there are certain aspects of how to define the role of the Commonwealth in the long term in relation to the protection of the environment and how to reflect that in administrative arrangements, which not having a background in environmental management and environmental law, I feel he's failed to understand. And as a result, there are ambiguities and and difficulties with some of the recommendations that will need to be teased out and clarified between now and the final report. So there's strengths and there's weaknesses in the interim report of the review of the EPBC Act. And if you've just tuned in, I'm speaking with Robert Fowler, adjunct professor in environmental law at the University of South Australia. I asked Rob if he thought his concerns would be addressed in the final report. The area where I think there is the need for clarification is around the idea of devolution of responsibility for assessment and approvals of projects under the Commonwealth legislation to the states. Under the current Act, it is possible for the Commonwealth to delegate to the states the responsibility for handling the procedural aspects of environmental assessment, for going through the receipt of the documentation from a proponent, examining it, determining what else needs to be added. Uh, There's a similar provision in the Act for the Commonwealth to devolve to the states the ultimate responsibility for the decision. And that latter provision has never been activated. The Abbott government wanted to do so under what it called its one-stop-shop initiative. And essentially what the Samuels report does is revive the idea of devolution of the approval powers of the Commonwealth to the states in certain circumstances. And in particular, he suggests where the states are meeting so-called national environmental standards and can show that their legislation, their policies are compliant with and with those national environmental standards. So what he's done is pick up what has been a coalition position for some years now, going back to 2012, and endorse that suggesting that there'll be greater efficiency if the Commonwealth gets out of the way and allows the states to make the final decisions on matters that fall subject to the Act. I've always felt that that was a rather odd way for a Commonwealth to assert its environmental responsibilities, to set up this whole legal framework and then to say to the states, well, OK, now we're handing it all over to you to do on matters of national environmental significance. It, it just seems to me a bizarre way to go about it, but it's the reflection of a philosophy of what we call cooperative federalism, where the Commonwealth and the states 
try to find ways to work together rather than independently of each other, which is fine. But in certain areas, a, a centralisation of responsibility is something that I would argue is absolutely necessary. And I think where projects do raise matters of national environmental significance, the Commonwealth has a responsibility in a far better place to, to perform these functions. And, and that the whole idea of delegation or devolution to the states needs reconsideration. That just doesn't seem to have occurred to Samuel with the endangered species, where that species may exist in one state, it's something that affects us all nationally. I mean, there's no, no question about that. That's right. And, and, and that raises the point that, in fact, this Act has four or five different elements to it. And so far, our discussion has been primarily about the environmental assessment and approval of projects. But there are other provisions around trade in wildlife, around Commonwealth reserves, and around uh, endangered species, which, as you say, were all put in together into the one act. And interestingly, the Samuels report suggests that these matters should perhaps be teased out again in the future and made the subject of separate acts. It has called for good data on which to base decisions. That's one of the things that we haven't had. Yeah, absolutely. I, I totally support those calls. And in, in this case, Samuel suggested that this should be an independent environment protection authority, but no clear idea as to how this is all going to be done. I think the other very important recommendation is around regional environmental planning. Again, there's not even an awareness of the need for some sort of mechanism to ensure that these plans are, are followed through. It's disappointing to see that some of those more sophisticated elements of, of environmental management haven't been picked up. One of the things that I think is very important is that the report has recognised the failure of the EPBC Act to sufficiently protect Indigenous culture. Yes, I noticed that too. And there are some quite strong statements on calling for much stronger provisions to be inserted into this Act or into a new Act to ensure effective protection of Indigenous heritage and culture. And I think it's obvious from recent events in, in Western Australia that there's a need for that type of protection that's just not there at the moment. Rob Fowler adjunct professor in environmental law at the University of South Australia, talking about the interim report of the review of the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act. And as he says, there are some positives in the interim report, but a lot to be concerned about. And there's still an opportunity to comment that closes next Monday, August 17th at nine in the morning. If you're thinking you might like to contribute, you can just Google EPBC Act review.environment.gov.au and I will put on the website. Coming up next, the truffle-eating long-nosed potteroo. Well, brothers and sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school, kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 250 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377.
You're on 3CR. The show is Listening Notes, and I'm Judith Peppard. Viviana Maritas is a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney. She did her honours research here in Victoria at Deakin University, studying the interaction between feral cats and the long-nosed potteroo. The first thing I wanted to know, since I've never seen one, is what does a long-nosed potteroo look like? Imagine a kangaroo, but if it was like just over a kilo, that's basically what they look like. They still have really long feet, elongated snout. So yeah, even like a quokka, I think most people are pretty familiar with quokkas. So they're about half the size of a quokka. But unlike kangaroos and quokkas, which are macropods, so which basically means long-footed, they're actually part of the rat kangaroo family. And that family includes potteroos, obviously, but also rat kangaroos and betongs. They're just distinguished from macropods in that they still have long feet, but they're not quite as long. They also have different teeth and different skull structure, but they're still like a marsupial where they have a pouch and they look very much like a small kangaroo. So where do you find a long-nosed potteroo? Where would I go? Where are they found in Australia? In mainland Australia, they're still quite rare because they are vulnerable as a result of loss of habitat, but also cats and foxes. Probably one of your safest bets is where I did my research, which is French Island. They're doing really well there, but you would have to be out at nighttime because <laughs> they're nocturnal. What kind of habitat does it need? Like what, where does it like to live? During the day when they're sleeping, they will nest in dense vegetation. And then at nighttime when they're out foraging and they forage for truffles, so a type of fungi, they go out in more open vegetation. That's not what we saw on French Island. And I will talk about that a little bit later. And uh, I was going to ask what it eats. So you said it eats fungi other things as well? They basically just look for these sporocarps. So they dig an ecosystem engineer, much like our bilbies and betongs and lyrebirds as well. Like they dig to forage for these truffles. And as they dig, they turn over the soil and that increases the soil fertility. Sometimes it can mitigate fires. It's pretty amazing. So can you describe your research? What were you trying to find out? During my third year of undergrad, I worked for the zoo, so Zoos Victoria. I got a job as a research assistant and they asked me to look at feral cats on French Island. And this was part of a bigger project because the zoo wanted to introduce eastern barred bandicoots to the island, which were extinct in the wild. And so I was there looking at cats and how they would impact that introduction. I came out of undergrad and I was like, well, I'd really love to do an honours project. And so I went back to the zoo and I was like, how can I grade this project? And they were like, yeah, we can still keep collecting data, but we can also look at how cats are interacting with long-nosed potteroos on the island, where we weren't just looking at how many cats were on the island, but we were also looking at how they were moving and what times they were active and then how they were interacting. How did you find that out? We use these motion sensor cameras. They detect differences in temperature. So when an animal moves past, it's a lot warmer than its environment and the camera fires and takes photos. These cameras have completely changed the way we do research. They're still quite new to conservation biology but they are so invaluable we had them uh, dispersed within our study area so it was within the national park they were within different vegetation and so when they were firing they were collecting not only what species were there 
but also we then knew how many times that species was photographed over a three-month period and also what vegetation it was in. Must have been an amazing moment to bring the cameras back in and look at what they had found. Did you just have to wait the three months? You couldn't have sneak peeks to see what was going on? You can collect the SD cards a bit earlier, but it's better to just have them running for three months because that's when you get the optimal amount of data for cats and potteroos. That was the time frame, and we did that over two seasons. So we did it over summer and winter. So we actually ended up with six months of data in the end. So you started looking at the images. What did you see? Yeah, so the first interesting thing we found is that even though potteroos are described as nesting in denser vegetation and then foraging in more open vegetation, in our study area we found that potteroos were rarely going out to the more open vegetation. And that has been seen before. With other species, they will compromise higher quality foraging habitat to mitigate predation risk. So we're thinking because cats were basically found everywhere within our study area that maybe potteroos are trying to avoid that predation risk by sticking to that more dense vegetation. And we did unfortunately get some images where cats had killed potteroos and we knew they hadn't scavenged them because cats rarely scavenge. They normally prefer live prey. The other super interesting thing that we found was because these cameras collect activity times, so basically when they take a photo, they also tell you what time they took the photo. So when we put that together, we found that cats were really active just at the start of night time, so around 9pm, and then they were active again in the morning. And potteroos, as expected, were active mostly at night time. But the times that they were active overlapped But the peak activity time, so when they were most active, we saw that cat activity would start to decrease. And then as soon as it started to decrease, long-nosed potteroo activity started to increase. This is another way that they could be mitigating that predation risk by shifting the time that they're most active. And we saw that over both seasons, summer and winter. And even though the cat activity shifted with the change in season, potteroo activity did exactly the same thing and shifted as well. So again, their peak activity times were different. Again, this is something that's been seen with predators, but it hasn't really been seen before where a native prey species has shifted its activity time to avoid a feral predator. And that was really exciting. And that was really exciting. I was speaking with Viviana Maritis about her research at Deakin University on the interaction of feral cats and long-nosed potteroos. And even though the potteroos have accommodated the cats, cats are still a huge problem. Cats are a massive issue. That's something I'm really interested in. How can we better protect our native species? And with cats, they're very difficult to manage. They're very clever and very hard to control. The only ways that we've kind of been able to mitigate predation risk at the moment has been through either culling cats or eradicating them from fenced areas or islands. And French Island is one of those areas where they are hoping to eradicate cats. If it does happen, that would be great because there are other species which are suffering as well. But what I'm really interested in is when cats can't be managed or eradicated, how do we better protect native species and that is very relevant in mainland Australia because we can't remove cats completely. What we found with long-nosed potteroos is that 
what matters to them the most is vegetation. So how they're surviving is that they're able to hide in that denser vegetation and regenerating habitat and protecting habitat is probably the most important thing for that species and for other similar species as well. What we're saying really is that culling of cats isn't necessarily the answer. Sometimes even one cat can decimate an entire population and that has been seen before. So if a species is showing that it can benefit more from regenerating its habitat, then that's maybe something we should be focusing more on. Yes, and that's a really important finding. The more information we have, the better. You have a population which is very unique in that it can survive in the presence of cats. What happens with a lot of sanctuaries where predators are not present is that these species kind of forget what it's like to avoid a predator. And so then you go to introduce them in an area where there are predators and they don't do very well. And so what we're saying is that you have this unique population that has developed this predator awareness. And so they're probably a really good population to introduce to other areas where long-nosed potteroos were, were present or even if they want to boost the population in areas of mainland Australia. That really makes sense. And do you have any idea of how their habitat, you mentioned the importance of habitat, how it's been affected by the bushfires in Victoria? Yeah, it's been reduced. I don't have final numbers on how exactly it's impacted long-nosed potteroos, but I know it definitely has, along with many other species. So I'm looking forward to seeing what the results are from that. Is there anything you'd like to say about your PhD research? Yeah, I'm doing my PhD on the south coast of New South Wales, looking at how species impacted by the fires can be better protected. Unfortunately, my fieldwork has kind of changed because of COVID-19. I'm looking at arboreal mammals, our glider species and possum species living in the trees. The canopies have been equally devastated as all the ground cover. So how can we better protect these species? And it's really interesting because I don't know if people have seen but the sugar glider was recently divided into three different species. And so what we originally knew as the sugar glider is now only really limited to this small part of Australia. And a lot of that area has been burnt. And sadly, of course, the bushfire season will be coming up again soon. Let's hope it's not like it was last year. Hopefully not. Congratulations on your research, beginning the PhD. It's fantastic. And thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you, Judith. Viviana Baritas, a PhD candidate at the University of Sydney. To enable change, we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter.
that was a track by Most Def called May December. Next up, we've got the second track of the Underfoot series. Uh, this series was produced and written by Footscray locals and residents, uh, Liz Crash and Jinghua Xian. And it brings an intimate lens to local history as they travel through the archives looking for people like themselves, queers, migrants, radicals, and artists. In the second track, titled Swamp Meets Salt, they investigate industry, water, and class war in Footscray. On a large scale, are poured into the river to be spread up and down as the tide flows. A dead sheep, swollen, ready to burst, floats close inshore. The river is red with the mixture of blood it contains. That's what a local journalist saw in 1887, right about where I'm standing now, on the west bank of the Maribyrnong River in Footscray. I've been looking through all these 19th century local newspaper archives a lot lately. I've been trying to get a better sense of the place I grew up, what it was like here before my family came. Almost all of the old streets are still around, but I keep seeing all these references to a place called Swamp Road. There's no Swamp Road in Footscray anymore. I set out to find out where it was. Turns out it's right about here. It's now called Dining Road, and you get to it by crossing the Hopkins Street Bridge I'm standing under. But I don't see any swamps around here. Turns out there used to be one, a huge one, so what happened to it? To answer that question, you have to go back to that blood in the water. The blood was from slaughterhouses further upstream. That was the first major settler industry in the area. Initially, the land west of the Maribyrnong River wasn't valued by settlers, except as grazing land. It was too flat, too dry, too windy. So the very first European settlers from the 1830s were grazers of cattle and sheep. And within a few years, there were thousands and thousands of sheep. The local market was small. The British markets were where the profits were. When there was an economic downturn in the 1840s and the price of wool dropped, it made sense financially to slaughter those sheep and process them into a form that was a bit more stable and could be put on a boat to England. Predominantly, this meant tallow. That's animal fat processed into a form that doesn't easily go rancid. To process tallow, you boil carcasses until the fat melts and separates from the flesh and the bone. Here's a journalist describing Raleigh's boiling downwards, a little upstream here. We saw 120 sheep cut into pieces, hobnobbing and pirouetting, and making merry together in a fashion strangely at variance with the usual staid character when alive. Heads and trotters came up and went down, rich joints and chops, briskets and necks, ribs and jawbones knocked and mauled each other without seizing, and each part of the 120 sheep seemed to us to join in vigorous protest against the boiling down process. After the price of wool rose again and they stopped boiling down, whole sheep boiling down works were still around, but they used the scraps from slaughterhouses. There were a lot of other industries that sprung up around slaughterhouse products and byproducts around this time, so leather tanning, bone grinding, soap making, fertilizer. By the time they got their materials, it had usually been a couple of days since slaughter and they hadn't been cleaned off. The stench was unbelievable. People complained about it constantly. It didn't just stink, it was dangerous. It made people sick. Footscray had a really high rate of infectious disease and mysterious poisonings and stuff like that. The 
slaughterhouse industries produced blood and fat and rotting dead flesh scraps, for starters, but also stuff like enzyme solutions made of shit and ammonia solutions made of piss and formaldehyde, hexavalent chromium, carcinogens by the kiloliter, and all of that was dumped straight in the river. It wasn't their river to trash, of course. The Maribyrnong River and the land around it belong to the Bunurong and Woiwurrung people. Those are two of the five language groups in the Kulin Nation Islands, around Melbourne and surrounding areas. They're still here, but in the 19th century, very few people from any nation, any Aboriginal nation, lived here. And one reason was the destruction of their food sources. Traditionally, the people who lived on the river relied a lot on river food, mussels and fish. A 19th century observer of the Maribyrnong said that they witnessed some small fish that had found their way into the putrid waters were swimming, dead or dying on the surface. So there were very few fish, and what few were left were not safe to eat. Water is important to everyone, of course. Water is life. But water is also central to Kulin people's spirituality. The traditional boundaries between each estate were drawn by rivers and creeks and water catchment areas, and that water and land has never been theirs to pollute. In Kulin cultures, you have a religious duty to protect the integrity of the land and the water. I don't mean religious as in, it's very important, I mean literally a religious duty. There's a Bunurong story about how the bay, that's now called Nam or Port Phillip Bay, used to be dry land until the sea rose up in anger because the people of the land were not meeting their responsibilities. They were overfishing, they weren't managing eel stocks, they were being careless towards the land and towards each other. Other Kulin nations have similar stories. Everyone agrees that the bay used to be land. And the geologists say the same thing. It was land until sea levels rose, first slowly, thousands of years ago, and then very, very fast, about a thousand years ago, breaking through a silt barrier in a flood. So this is a story about water that shows, first of all, the exact location and the sea and river and how they change over time is really important. The kind of thing you hold on to for at least a thousand years. Secondly, it's a story where poor management of fish stock is seen as such a profound neglect of your social and spiritual responsibilities that the sea itself will rise up against you. I wasn't able to find out exactly what Woiwurrung or Bunurong people felt about what was happening to the Maribyrnong in the 19th century. The oral histories from that time are really disrupted. But I think it must have felt like the end of the world. The Maribyrnong flows straight into the sea now. It used to go through a vast wetland first. East of where I'm standing, on the other bank of the river, you can see the Port Melbourne docks. That used to be the Great Melbourne Swamp, the place the swamp road ran beside. In 1841, at high tide, the swamp was described as a real lake, intensely blue, nearly oval and full of the clearest salt water. The flats, the bits that were never fully covered by the water, were covered in plants and birds, and in summer the pig-faced plant would put out so many vivid purple flowers that whole islets looked magenta from the Footscray bank. That is not what it looked like a couple decades later. By the time the Maribyrnong struggled to the sea, it was so charged with filth and salt, it was a trickle. The swamp was kind of catching all the city's garbage like a whale catching krill. 
So a bit further south of those Port Melbourne docks and the East Bank, you can just see the buildings from here. They look like big white tubs. That's Crude Island, their chemical storage facility. I always wondered why Crude Island was called that. It's not an island. But turns out it used to be. These days, the Maribyrnong River meets up with the Yarra, the other major Melbourne river, near the ocean, just a little south of here, about a K or two. The course of the Yarra used to be quite different. In the 1870s, the Yarra was rerouted to make it more accessible for shipping. But the original course of the Yarra was still there. And between the new canal and the old Yarra, Coode Island was cut off from the mainland. The old Yarra has been filled in now, but there were traces of its presence up until about the 60s. So the original meeting point of the Yarra and the Maribyrnong was right near the top tip of Crude Island, right about here. I'm not too far from where I started, just a block or two south, near the Shepherd Bridge. The fork in the river that was once here, the point where the Yarra and the Maribyrnong met and parted, was, it turns out, the initial reason for what has proven to be Melbourne's most enduring class divide. Growing up in the western suburbs gives you a bit of a chip on your shoulder. You're used to being mocked, and it makes you defensive. Footscray is a bit gentrified now, a bit trendy, but when I was growing up here in the 90s, it was definitely not cool. I remember when I was about eight or nine, a kid from another area confidently declared that Footscray smelled bad. And I was furious, but I was also baffled. Footscray smelled pretty much like everywhere else in Melbourne, as far as I could tell. I concluded that the smell that she was talking about was a metaphorical smell, smell of low class. And that was a pretty good piece of amateur sociological analysis, but it turns out that people have been saying Footscray smells bad for generations. And for most of that time, Footscray smelled terrible. In 1882, Footscray was at peak smelliness. People used to call it worst Melbourne. That was also the year the Footscray Rowing Club won the Clark Challenge Cup, a major national championship on their own home practice river of the Maribyrnong. The locals went wild. The rivals were people from rich places like Turiac who practiced on the Yarra. It was a victory for the whole township. Visitors were less enthralled, mainly because they kept getting splashed with the blood and fat and chunks of rotting flesh that were in the river. A few years later, the regatta was moved to Albert Park Lake. Footscray people complained bitterly and accused the regatta crowd of being a pack of sooks. On the face of it, that's absurd. Not wanting to get splashed with rotting entrails is not exclusive to the aristocracy. But if that seems absurd, so does this. After winning the championship in 1882, Footscray was disqualified from advancing because too many of the squad were manual workers. It was judged that having to be strong for your job made you basically a professional athlete and it was an amateur competition, hence disqualification. Thus, the dominance of the upper classes in the sport of rowing was assured. So when the rowing authorities rejected the smells of the Maribyrnong, it was in a context where they'd already rejected the people of Footscray. They'd punished them for daring to excel at something the upper classes had decided was theirs. The smell in this case was real, but it was still also a metaphor for disgust and contempt for the working class. Why was the Maribyrnong so polluted anyway? 
The reason that's usually given is that in 1867, the Public Health Act was amended to provide stronger protections for Melbourne's drinking water. Freshwater rivers and lakes like the Yarra were protected. The Maribyrnong River mingles with the sea for quite a way upstream, so it wasn't protected. It's, it's too salty. It's not drinkable. What were called the noxious industries, anything smelly, anything polluting, anything with toxic runoff, had to relocate to the Maribyrnong if they wanted access to a river. And they did want access to a river. Rivers are transport routes, they're infrastructure, and as we've seen, they're a waste disposal route. It's definitely true that the Public Health Act led to a lot of heavy industry relocating to the Maribyrnong River. By 1871, a third of the noxious trades in Melbourne were located on the Maribyrnong, and by 1888, about half of them were. It's also true that the Yarra was originally a sense of drinking water. That's why the oldest parts of Melbourne are all on the Yarra, including the most wealthy and exclusive suburbs. That was the location that the very first British colonial survey recommended in 1803. The Yarra and the Maribyrnong are called the Freshwater and Saltwater River in early documents from that survey. The Freshwater River was quickly renamed the Yarra based on what settlers believed to be its Warrandry name. The Saltwater River kept that placeholder name, that marker of its lesser value, until 1913. Here's the thing though. By the time the pollution of the Maribyrnong was at its worst, the Yarra was no longer a freshwater river. In 1883, civil engineers blew up the little waterfall that used to prevent seawater coming back up the Yarra. They decided they didn't like it anymore, it was too much of a flood risk. And given that the Yanyin Reservoir had been finished in 1853 and most people who lived in Melbourne were getting water piped in from there, nobody was actually getting their drinking water from the Yarra anymore. At least no one who mattered was getting their drinking water from the Yarra. So initially, sure, maybe the fact that the Yarra was protected and the Maribyrnong wasn't was about the Yarra being fresh and the Maribyrnong being salt. But I think another reason, and certainly the reason things stayed that way, was class. Protecting the Yarra was about protecting Melbourne's wealthy from the smells of the noxious industries, pushing them off to what was then the fringe of the city. People in Footscray did try and fight industrial pollution, but the factory owners pushed back with the narrative that if you loved Footscray's people, you loved its smells. They framed themselves as job creators, pioneers of Footscray, pillars of the economy, and they stacked out the council and the local media. If you didn't want to smell rotting meat all day, you were a Turak tough, a fancy boy. It was pretty unpleasant to learn about this because I realised, had I been around at the time, that incredibly cynical PR strategy would have totally worked on me. I used to say I personally wouldn't care if the whole planet got paved over when I was a teenager. I knew it would be a bad idea. I just couldn't relate to the environmentalists I met. They just seemed like annoying hippies who loved forests and hated heavily polluted post-industrial regions. And when I first became interested in industrial history, it was because it made me feel really at home and it made me feel more connected to my family and it made me feel more connected to my community. But so many people in my family and my community have been hurt by industrial accidents and poisonings and disease. They played me like a fucking fiddle. And things aren't that different today. 
You know how people used to complain endlessly about the smell of the boiling down works? Works that made tallow? They still do. The Australian tallow industry's factory is one of the most repeated violators of environmental protection air quality regulations in the state. And they are located just next door to Cedar Meats, the meat packing plant that was recently identified as the central node of over 100 coronavirus infections. That slaughterhouse complex is in the suburb of Brooklyn, about six kilometres from where that kind of thing used to be in Footscray. The past is never really past, it's just elsewhere, in a slightly cheaper postcode. What will we do when this is over? And everything is like it was before. We will be walking round on clover instead of sleeping in a bed of
That was Il Camille and Jay LaMotta and Suff Daddy with a song called Magic. BDS Australia is hosting an online forum featuring boycott, divestment and sanctions. BDS co-founder Omar Barghouti on Saturday, August 29 at 7.30pm. Joining Omar will be First Nations scholars Amy McGuire and Professor Tony Birch, as well as Palestinian Australians Dr. Randa Abdel Fattah and Ms. Hibafara. They'll be discussing the shared experience of dispossession, state-based discrimination and racism, and how to counter it. Details can be found at bdsaustralia.net.au. That's bdsaustralia.net.au. Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions, BDS Australia, is part of the global effort to end support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians and pressure Israel to comply with international law. More details at bdsaustralia.net.au. BDS Australia is a free CR support. This next interview talks about self-harm and suicide and mental illness. So if these are topics that are triggering or provoke uncomfortable feelings in you, just switch off the dial and tune back in in about 40 minutes. Today, I have a very special guest on the show. Her name is Professor Jayashree Kulkarni, and she's the Professor of Psychiatry at the Alfred and Monash University. She's also the founder and director of the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre, a large group dedicated to discovering new treatments, new understanding and new services for people with a range of mental illnesses. She is internationally acknowledged as a leader in the field of women's mental health in particular for her innovative work on reproductive hormones and mental illness. Today, I'm talking to Jayashree about the link between mental health and reproductive hormones. In particular, the impact of hormonal contraception on mental health. I'm super excited to talk about this topic. I know many of my cisgendered female friends have had varying experiences on contraception and even for me personally. Uh, The discussion on mental illness and reproductive hormones is becoming more talked about with new research and now especially voices like Jayashree's leading the way. Thank you so much for joining us, Jayashree. My pleasure. And thank you so much, Genevieve, for inviting me. I really do enjoy talking about this particular area and your problem will be to get me to stop talking. Oh, that's great. I'm I'm very glad to hear that. Um, Jayashree, how did you become interested in women's mental health and in particular the link between reproductive hormones and mental illness? So it's a bit of a long story, but in actual fact, when I was doing my training in psychiatry as a psychiatry registrar, uh, in those days, there was the uh, mental health institutions big institutions and one of them was called royal park hospital near royal park zoo and in fact when i was there um, i was allocated the uh back ward that is where the women were located and at those days it was pretty horrible women were and men were um, admitted to mental health institutions for years and years and uh, so the back ward which had um, been set up for women and that was the women's only ward um, had women who'd been there for decades and in my job as a registrar I um, would spend quite a long time speaking with each individual patient 
And many of the women's stories began with, I was fine until I had my child. Um, or some of the women said, I think it's my hormones, doc. You know, and these comments kept coming up. And also the comments that were made was, nobody believes me. Nobody thinks there's anything in this story about it's my hormones that have caused the mental ill health. Or particularly the women who had a postnatal or a postpartum, um, either severe depression or psychosis, and it just never went away. And that started me thinking that some, you know, we, that I should do something about exploring this intuitive observation that many of the women clients had in those ward settings, and that then sent me off onto a whole range of activities. One was to try and find out what was the uh, data, the research data, particularly in the animal area, and uh, there was a little, not a lot. So this is going back into 1990. And I um, also found a, a German psychiatrist at the time, Professor Heinz Hefner, and he had been working in the area of estrogens and uh, in an animal study had shown that estrogen has a um, positive effect on psychiatric symptoms in the brain. And so I took that and I listened to my patients' stories and I saw more women with the same sorts of stories and, uh, and that plus the animal experiments, plus also some um, talking to endocrine or hormone experts in back in Victoria. Professor Henry Berger was one of the earliest uh, experts that I spoke to who was not in psychiatry but in endocrinology. And so I kind of pieced together this possibility that, um, that mental health was impacted by women's hormones. And that's how the field started. And that's how I've grown um, in terms of developing various clinical trials in which we actually did show that adding estrogen to the treatment um, in women who had schizophrenia, for example, improved their symptoms. That then led on to research in mood disorders, so the depression, PMDD, um, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, perimenopausal depression, the pill, oh, a whole range of areas. So, um, yeah, I, I always think it is really rewarding when research is closely aligned with the individuals who are asking for the help, who have the lived experience of the condition, and that research is working in, in that area like with a face-to-face -face contact with the individuals you have dialogues that are really meaningful and really helpful um, for the person with lived experience to tell you what they think the next round of research should be or what the issues are and vice versa that when you're actually working in a in trying to develop a new treatment you you work with people so I don't do research on subjects I work in collaboration with people who have a lived experience of an illness and hopefully together we come up with something new. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to talk about as well, I think it would be good for our listeners to really get a sense of how reproductive hormones affect women's moods by talking about PMS, which is mm -hmm. premenstrual syndrome. Uh, mm -hmm. How do reproductive hormones cause PMS symptoms, especially mood changes and overall mental well-being? So it's really important to understand that hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, and a whole range of other hormones that the pituitary gland makes to regulate the levels of estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone, that all of these hormones we, we know are involved with 
reproduction, right? They regulate egg being released. They regulate um, the cycle, the monthly cycle. And then also uh, there are changes in these hormones when a woman is um, approaching menopause. So we're all very familiar with the reproductive side of these hormones. But what is really critical is that all of these hormones are absolutely potent neurosteroids. By that, I mean that they're brain hormones as well. And that took a long time to understand. And it was really only from the 1990s onwards, and particularly in the, in the uh, 2005 onwards, that there's been much more um, research at a, at a basic level in animal models, but really showing that these are potent brain hormones. So once we have that knowledge in the neuroscience field, it doesn't take too much then to understand that when somebody comes in and they say, you know, I'm okay for about three weeks of every month. And then for one week of every month, I just, my whole life is turned upside down. And there is a difference between PMS, which you described as PMS is premenstrual syndrome. And what I talked about is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. They're on a spectrum. But PMS is kind of the baby end of the spectrum, is the smaller um, dysfunction or, or feelings of discomfort right through to PMDD, which is a really horrible major depression that makes women quite moribund. And so once a month for about 10 days, you know, some women are extremely affected in their mental health. And it overlaps with what's going on in their monthly hormones. So when estrogen is low, the mood is low. So estrogen is the good hormone. It's lovely hormone in the brain. It acts in the brain like an antidepressant. It acts in the brain like an antipsychotic. And progesterone can also be an anti-anxiety hormone. They've got these other functions in the brain, as well as regulating ovulation and, you know, and then reproduction and having a baby and so on. So what we're seeing is that many women and about 80% of the reproductive age group experience some discomfort in the week prior to having a menstrual bleed. So that's the premenstrual week. And the syndrome, the premenstrual syndrome, is usually a bunch of physical symptoms such as um, breasts get swollen, get tender. Um, there can be bloating in other parts of the body. Some women say their rings don't fit, um, their belly looks bigger, and that's fluid retention. Um, and as well as that, some people describe that they're a bit more irritable and a bit more bitchy um, you know they're just sort of a, at, a, at a slightly niggly level um, and they're the sort of main features of PMS right through to in a spectrum uh, getting severer and more severe and at the PMDD which is the affecting about 10 to 15 percent of the reproductive age group of women there is this crashing severe depression that comes on really suddenly and so women say i'm fine one day and the next day i don't have any energy i can't get out of bed i just get fog in the head i can't think i can't concentrate my memory goes you know to pieces I'm just so angry, um, I'm crying, I can't control it. Um, so quite severe depression. And even with suicidal thinking, that's how bad the depression gets. Some women 
feel like hurting themselves or do hurt themselves or think about suicide or ending it all. It's a very major form of depression. And then just as suddenly it lifts. And that happens often when the woman starts having her period uh, or just into the period. So that's the classical PMDD. But what I look for in my clinic when I'm working with women who have PMDD is, is there a cyclical pattern? It may not exactly be in this exact sort of one week before having a menstrual bleed, but often you'll get the picture that women will say it comes on suddenly and it comes on about every four or five weeks. And then I'll feel really, really bad for a week, 10 days, even two weeks. And then it goes suddenly. And that's not the picture of something that is like a major depression, an ordinary major depression, which is bad enough. But that usually comes on more gradually and you can pin down the fact that, you know, there's problems at work, there's problems in relationship, there's just a general dissatisfaction or there's a loss somebody died, somebody left, you know, there's, there's things going on and then the woman has a growing de depression. This is different. This is like nothing, 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 totally fine, totally happy, bang, um, big depression, and then bang again, it gets better. And so when you get that kind of signal, it tends to suggest that there's an on-off switch going on, which means there's something biological happening here. And that's what then leads to the um, consideration of hormone switch. And yes, it does correlate because then we can use a hormone as a treatment strategy. The other thing I really want to make it clear, though, is this is a brain disorder. Yes, it involves the reproductive hormones and the estrogen, progesterone work on the ovaries and they work on the uterus. But this is a brain condition. PMS, PMDD is a brain condition. So please to you and your friends, don't go and have a hysterectomy and get your ovaries out or whatever people do, because I see too many sad stories where women have thought, if I just get rid of it all, then I'm going to be fine. That's not uh, the first or even, you know, like step number six or seven or eight, you know, that's not a consideration up front because there is a, a, a sort of brain, not a sort of, there is a brain hormone effect so even if you remove the end organs, it's still going to be a cycle in the brain. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I wanted to focus, I know you touched on the definition and how estrogen impacts the brain. Um, I wanted to focus on the difference between especially estrogen and progesterone. Um, what is this difference? How does estrogen differ from impacting on the brain? And how does progesterone differ? So they're completely different hormones. They have a different molecular structure. They have different um, uh, product production in terms of the different hormones that create the different levels and so on. And, the, and estrogen is a, um, a hormone that impacts positively in terms of working on the serotonin receptor system. So you will have heard of serotonin as one of the depression neurochemicals. So estrogen can have a direct effect on serotonin. It also has a direct effect on dopamine, which is the other big neurochemical that's involved in 
schizophrenia, in depression, in all sorts of conditions. So estrogen has a very interesting um, set of effects. It works directly on the, on the brain chemicals and it works directly on the brain receptor systems. It also um, works via other hormones as well. So there's an indirect and a direct mechanism and it can work uh, through a genomic system as well. So estrogen has a number of different effects. Progesterone, on the other hand, um, is works on the uh, neurochemicals, the GABA system, which is relating to anxiety syndromes. So progesterone really does have an effect on anxiety. And um, it's a funny hormone because it really has different effects at different doses. And that's why it's more difficult in a chemical sitting, setting, like with the pill, to get it right for progesterone because there are different types of progesterone, synthetic ones, and they all have different effects. And they have different effects at different doses. So if you have a tiny dose of progesterone, it can help with anxiety. But in the medium kind of doses which is what's in the pill it can be depressive in itself it can cause depression through working on the GABA system on higher doses it can also be effective for treating anxiety and 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 depression so it, it's it's a tricky hormone whereas estrogen is a little bit easier to manipulate and uh, has more uh, impact on the on the main main neurochemicals that um, create mental ill health if you've just joined us, you're listening to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And this is an interview with Professor Jayashri Kolkhani. Jayashri is the uh, Professor and Director of Psychiatry at the Monash Alfred Hospital. And she's talking to us about her research and her passion in women's health and the link between reproductive hormones and mental illness. Yeah, I think especially talking about synthetic progesterone is a good segue into talking about contraception, which I know um, you've investigated a lot between the link between mental health and hormonal contraception, like the pill. Uh, could you explain some of your findings in these studies, especially if there is a link between mental illness and hormonal contraception? Yes, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that, again, came from um, my female patients was uh, I observed that many of the women said things like, um, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm depressed and nothing is really new in my environment. I've got the same boyfriend, the same work, etc., etc. Um, but I just feel terrible. I just don't feel joy. And when I looked at what was going on, there was a pattern emerging about the pill the oral contraceptive pill that the women were taking. Now, the pill, we call it the pill as if it's one thing, but it's actually not. There are many, many different forms of the pill as well as there are different types. So we talked about estrogen and progesterone, two main hormones, and most pills combine estrogen and progesterone, and that's what's called the combined oral contraceptive pill. There are, however, uh, contraceptives that are just progesterone, so the commonest form is the straw that's under the skin called Implanon or the Mirena IUD, which is an IUD, intrauterine device, and that has progesterone. And so those and the, and the morning after pill and also the mini pill. So they are progesterone only. So they're all just progesterone, no estrogen. So what 
has been shown in our studies and other people around the world is that the progesterone-only pills or the progesterone-only devices like the straw under the skin or the IUD worsen depression or create depression in some women. Not all women, but some women. And again, this applies, you know, that some women are very vulnerable to their hormonal fluctuations, whereas other women are not. So in the vulnerable group, the progesterone-only pill or the progesterone-only hormone contraception can actually create a depression where there wasn't one or make a depression that had been under the woman's control much, much worse. And it's an important factor that people need to consider when they are looking for a contraception or if they're on a contraception and they can't quite work out what the hell is going on, you know, why am I feeling so low? Think about what contraception you've started. It, usually this is a bit more insidious in onset, so it takes about two cycles, maybe three cycles for it to become clear that something's not quite right. And it doesn't, it doesn't create the sort of moribund total take-to-bed type depression It takes the form of just being extra irritable, extra hostile, extra um, not able to really laugh out loud and experience the joys, the real highs of life, just to kind of be muted, but to also lose perspective. So in an argument, for example, things just get blown up out of proportion and everyone's going, what the hell is wrong with you? Um, It's it's that sort of level of, of depression. So um, the combined oral contraceptive pill, again, it's not one pill. We've got so many varieties on the market and each of those has a different progesterone in it. So if what we did in the study was we started to look at the combined oral contraceptive pill and the the progesterone only and make a league ladder, if you like, of what was the, the worst for creating depression and what was the best. And I'm sad to say that there's not a lot that were really good for mood. There's really only one, and that's a a more expensive pill. Um, Its trade name is Zoli, Z-O-E-L-Y, and it's got nomigestrol and an estradiol. So nomigestrol is the type of progesterone it has, and that's a mood good pill. But there's many on the market that are really quite awful for mood, and particularly the progesterone-only pills Uh, are the the worst because they don't have the nice estrogen to balance them at all. But even the other pills, there's some some horror stories about the depression that can hit when a vulnerable woman takes the pill with a particular type of progesterone that's not good for mood. Yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, some of the medical bias as well that happens, uh, especially when cisgendered women go to the doctor Um, especially since, and I think you stated in an article, um, women experience mental illness in higher numbers than um, our male counterparts. Um, And also just wanted to focus on uh, borderline personality disorder. So a female dominant diagnosis that you state carries enormous stigma. Could you explain why borderline personality disorder is problematic diagnosis and does it have to do with a lack of understanding around the fluctuation of female hormones? It's a very good question, Genevieve. Um, Borderline personality disorder has got a long and tortured history. So it's 
as it says, a condition that is seen as a personality disorder. Now, here's point number one. I don't agree with that um, because the symptoms that, that the, the person with borderline has uh, include such things as deliberate self-harm. So often the um, person who slashes their wrists or burn them, burns themselves and, and um, may not be trying to kill themselves, but they're trying to harm themselves. And there's an impulsivity. They're quite impulsive in, in that kind of action. Um, there's often a sense of emptiness inside, um, problems with identity, not really knowing who they are. Uh, problems with a fear of abandonment that, um, you know, in relationships they worry that the other person will disappear and, and they will be abandoned. Um, there's flights of, you know, complete um, depression at times. Then the next day it can be quite, um, the person can be quite manic. Um, there's all kinds of self-destructive behaviours. So this conglomerate which is really quite diffuse you know they're, they're not easy to put together these symptoms but these were put together and called personality disorder and more women uh, than men were diagnosed with severe borderline personality disorder and what we've done is very carefully take a bigger history from the individuals who've got diagnoses of borderline personality disorder and what we found is and many other researchers have done this in internationally as well. Mary Zanarini is a, is a, is a key worker in the field. Um, have found that there's a long, awful trauma story in early life for many of the sufferers who've got a, a, a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. That there's really horrible stories of childhood abuse, childhood verbal, physical, emotional, sexual abuse. And when you take that story, it all starts to make a lot more sense that what has happened is this particular individual has had a horrible childhood in which she, predominantly she, has been abused, but then because as a child, a child can't say that person who did that is the bad person, is the, is the culprit, you know, is the, is the cause of all of this a child will take it on themselves and go I'm a bad person I've done something bad that's why all this stuff happened and so that sense of being bad follows the individual as they grow up and then there's a there's a sense of self-punishment through um, hurting self you know, with with slashing wrists or other other behaviors once we try and understand what has happened I actually think we come to a better realisation that this is a person who's actually a survivor, not a terrible person who's got sort of a, a weak personality or a disordered personality, but an individual who's actually a trauma survivor. Uh, they've been a victim, a trauma victim, but often the women I meet are incredible. Like despite the horror stories, they've pulled themselves out and managed to get themselves uh, a, an education, a job, a partner, a children, you know, I mean, really got on with it despite the odds. And yet um, they can be labelled as having a personality disorder. So that's what I object to. I think what this condition has a lot in common with is post-traumatic stress disorder. 
which we know about and we know about it in veterans, war veterans in particular, who have gone on manoeuvres in a, in a war zone and then a grenade goes off and they have a terrible response. But when you look at those symptoms, there's a very common thread that runs through those particular uh, symptoms and the same symptoms that somebody who's had a terrible early traumatic life um, and, and what she experiences is a similarity. So there's a new diagnosis called complex PTSD, which is part of the World Health Organization classification system. That's not the American DSM system, which unfortunately is in common use in Australia. And the DSM system doesn't have complex PTSD. But complex PTSD better suits particularly a lot of women who've had that horrible story of trauma in their early life and then subsequent traumas, by the way, because if you don't think that you're any good, if you think that you deserve punishment, that you're a bad person, that's what you've grown up with, that's what your self-talk and message is, then you find bad things because you don't believe you deserve good things. So you seek out further bad relationships or bad situations that then you know, traumatise further. So there's sort of one trauma after another. And so what we do see is a history of traumas. And if we can then use the trauma therapies that are successful in the war veterans and other um, traumatised groups, we can then offer this individual something better. We also get away from the, the label of a personality disorder, which is another kind of stigma to, to put into somebody. You know, your personality stuffed. Well, that's a pretty terrible thing to tell anyone, yeah, you know, because you're saying the essence of you is stuffed. That's not good. What do the hormones have to do with this? So in people who are traumatised in early life, their hormone world becomes changed and altered. You, you know yourself, if, you, if you're facing a trauma, if you're facing some kind of um, event you gear yourself up for it. Your pulse rate goes up, your blood pressure goes up, um, you, you might sweat. You know, you've got a whole bunch of physical reactions to stress and trauma. So imagine in the person who's living in that stressful situation for most of her early years. It has to take a toll on her body as well as her mind, as well as her brain. So what happens here is that the stress hormone levels get activated and stay activated way beyond what they should be. So here you have a, a young person in a stressful household who's kind of living life on the edge. It's as if they're always ready to, to fight or flight or you know, run away or protect themselves. And that elevated cortisol and other stress hormones impact on their gonadal hormones. So they impact, impact on estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. And hence you have a greater incidence of PMDD, that's the depression cyclically, um, or other physical health conditions related to the gonadal hormones because the two hormone systems, all the hormone systems talk to each other. So if you've got a change in one, you're going to have a change in other. And that's why we do see a connection in some, but not all, uh, women who have PMDD might also have an early life trauma story. And what I'm always careful to do is to steer away from a borderline personality disorder diagnosis because it doesn't help 
um, that particular person. It doesn't help um, the treatment teams come up with something that's going to help. Because if you think about the, this particular complex PTSD diagnostic label, means we can offer trauma therapies. We can also use hormone correcting therapies to deal with the PMDD. So you've immediately opened up a whole lot of other avenues that could be very useful. And we always think, okay, this is somebody who has been a trauma survivor. Well done you. You know, how did you do it? Tell us because we can then enhance your coping skills because you clearly got some resources that, you know, we need to bring out and, and congratulate you for and do more with different to saying you're just a stuffed person. There's nothing we can do. Yeah, definitely. And I think like this is all information that is not readily available to women as I think it should be. And I think a lot of frustration for cisgendered women is the lack of awareness of how hormones can impact your mental health. It's actually something I wish my GP would have told me before choosing a contraception. And it seems a lot of women go in blind to what they're getting um, only to see the effects later. Uh, why do you think there isn't a substantial discussion about the effect of reproductive hormones between women and their doctors? I think this is um, relatively new. Like I said, really, it's only the 1990s where it was recognised that the reproductive hormones have brain effects. You know, up until then, there was very little laboratory research. Now, to get laboratory research out into the real world and into the clinical setting and for the community setting takes a, takes a, it takes a while. And we still have a lot of resistance with people kind of going, but reproductive hormones are all below the waist. What are you talking about the brain for? It, it's kind of like we're, you know, people practice in silos so gynecologists are really good at thinking about ovaries and uterus and, and, you know, all below the waist. But psychiatrists think about mental health but don't think about body health perhaps as readily or don't think about reproductive health as readily. So GPs, um, unfortunately, will look for the, the select bit that they're dealing with, which is, what, you know, you want a contraceptive? Sure, here's a contraceptive. Why do I need to think about asking you about depression or anxiety symptoms you know it's it's that disconnect in the way medicine is practiced we we need more holistic practice but it does take time for evidence or research findings from animal work to get out into the into the clinical field and then into the community knowledge but programs like this are absolutely critical because I don't think that it's any good doing research and publishing it only in the high-flying medical journals. We have to do that in order to get grants and funding and go on with it. But we also need programs like this to be able to empower women to go, okay, I'm feeling bad once a month. And I, I recognise this. And then to be able to have a frank and honest discussion about that observation with her treating doctor to say who then will take it all seriously because both parties have knowledge about hormone effects uh, in the brain and therefore on mental health. So we need to get all this information that's, that's just emerging or it's not that new now. 1990 was a fair while ago, but, you know, it's not centuries old information. 
Definitely. And obviously you're doing a tremendous job at paving the way and closing this research and medical gap. I just wanted to finish on your advice to women to better understand their reproductive hormones and what they should do if they need to help, need help or further information. Um, it's, I think it's really important that, um, you know, any, anyone who takes any medication and I'm including the contraceptive pill in that group, um, you need to know all the ins and outs about it. There are leaflets that are in, in packets of the pill, for example, with anything, but it's not, uh, it's, it's, it's very much your job and importantly your job to ask the questions. And if you have an observation, like you notice something goes wrong every month, then that's valid. It's your observation. It's not that you're making it up. It's not that you're somehow not in tune with what's going on or you're just being a hypochondriac or whatever. No, your observations are valid and they need to be raised with your treating team because the pill, for example, there are many different types. And if one doesn't suit you because it's making you feel depressed, that is true and valid. So don't dismiss it especially if you know that nothing else has changed in your environment, there's no reason for you to feel extra depression or stress or whatever it is, then please take it up with your doctor and make sure that you've got um, information that you can provide also that you've read about the effects of the pill that you've, you know, gone to the general sort of um, uh, literature and, and Google has its good and bad bits, but you know, there is information there to then back up your observations and, and have a, a discussion. Your doctor will hopefully listen um, because there is more information coming out there. But we also know that there are different styles of practicing medicine and sometimes people are more collaborative than others. So find, find that match because you need someone you can trust to, to work through the issues with you. Definitely. Thank you so much for joining us, Jayashree. It's actually been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time and interest in this topic because um, this is the sort of program that I, I know will reach a large number of women and hopefully improve outcomes for those who are struggling with this. You don't have to struggle alone. There is some information out there. Friday the 11th of September is National Walk Safely to School Day. During COVID-19, we need to support children who are learning from home. No matter where they are, children need to be physically fit to be mentally fit. It's a great reminder to all children and adults that walking regularly is the best exercise. So put your feet first and walk plenty in 2020. And remember, active kids are smarter kids. Find us on walk.com.au, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Walk Safely to School Day is a 3CR supporter.